right, so welcome everyone to another episode of Podium Stories. Today we have a very special guest in the building. His name is Andrew Gazeki. He's a longtime entrepreneur. Uh, he's a founder of Business App, a company operating in over 40 countries and employing over 100 people. His second business, Alcoin.io, was a decentralized exchange for trading digital assets, which was also acquired. He's now the founder of MicroAcquire, which we'll put the link below, but you should check, definitely check it out. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for being here, man. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, dude, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I, I want to talk about a couple of different things because we, I think we could talk for hours, but uh, there's, there's two or three topics that I really want to touch. And the first one is related to the company uh, MicroQuire, which is um, uh, the company that you're running right now. Um, and I want to talk about selling companies and why should entrepreneurs do that? When should entrepreneurs do that? What are the lessons you learn by, after selling business apps? So the first thing that I want to ask you is, do you think we've overglorified getting to unicorn status? Like that's the only way that we can consider as success. And we have stopped celebrating the smaller growing or profitable startups that took a lot of effort and are actually life-changing companies as well. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think there's, there's two types of entrepreneurs. Like, you know, some want to be king. They want to raise a ton of money. They want to go big. They want IPO. And I have a ton of respect for those entrepreneurs because it's not easy. And they create some amazing businesses. But if you just look at the statistics in terms of what it takes to build a company like that, you know, the odds are just stacked against you. Like a question I would ask you this, Marty, like, would you invest? If I told, if I came to you and I was like, Hey, I got this great investment, man. It's going to take 10 years of your life and you have a 1% shot of succeeding. Like, would you take that investment? I would. Some people so would. So that's kind of, that's kind of what, you know, entrepreneurs are signing up for when, you know, their goal is to build a unicorn. Obviously when it works out, it's amazing, but, um, you know, when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, especially second time founders, there's just a different thought process. And that thought process is really understanding, you know, how can I be successful and understanding how can I maximize my odds of success? And that other path is building, you know, a business that does a million a year, two million a year, five million a year, 10, 20 million a year. In VC land, that's a complete failure. Like, right which is insane. Like a 20 million a year business is, is a failure. Um, so I think, yeah, it has been glorified. I think people are drawn to extremes. Everyone wants to hear about the next Mark Zuckerberg, um, the next Airbnb, like the next Zoom. But, you know, the people that really inspire me are the ones that are just building profitable businesses, doing what they love, um, understanding that, you know, you don't have to build a unicorn to be successful. Um, so, you know, there, there's two routes and, you know, one's for a certain type of entrepreneur. And I think a lot of other entrepreneurs are really starting to understand that, you know, it's okay to build a profitable company that makes you happy, that serves, you know, customers that you provide a lot of value to. And by doing that, you're really just, optimizing your chances of success and then you know the other part i would add to that too is you know if you do want to build a unicorn you don't have to start out like saying like hey i'm going to build like the biggest thing possible you can 
you know, start slowly, find product market fit, um, you know, avoid investors, um, build that into the DNA of your company because without investors, every dollar that you spend, you spend it as if it's your own dollar because right. it is. And then when you raise money from investors, you're going to be more diligent and your unit economics are going to be much stronger. Um, so a, that's a great question. I, I hope I answered that question because I could talk a lot about it. Um, right. yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I think we should celebrate, you know, the funding announcements a little bit less. I'd love to see companies start celebrating, you know, revenue milestones, um, you know, things that like are, are, aren't vanity metrics um, instead of just, hey, sold a third of our company. Right. Um, let's all celebrate. Um, even though obviously that capital is used to fuel growth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the companies that excite me most are the ones that, you know, you don't hear in the headlines. Yeah. I, I remember when I, when I was starting out, we were like at 10 K MRR and I would compare myself to like these companies that were like, uh, with busy money and, and like, they were doing like 15, 20, 30 K or an MRR, which were really small companies for a venture back company. But I was like, why are we not there yet? Right? Like, why are they like winning us? Why, why, why are we so behind? And then I started thinking, right? Like, they have so much money that, and it's not their single, like every dollar they spend, it's not theirs. Like when I started, I started with my, in my bedroom with just a laptop, but they, it's a different star and it's hard to compare yourself with them. Um, but, but there, there's a point when you run a bootstrap company, uh, where I think like you touch on microcar and a few articles that I've read where it, it's good or it can be a possibility to sell and move into something else. Um, but we offer here the advice, the more money you raise, the better in what way is not rate, not relying on BC money was helpful to exit business apps successfully. So when you don't raise, let me rephrase that. So the more capital that you raise, the higher bar you place for a right. successful exit. So a good example would be, you just raise $20 million at a $100 million valuation. So you have to sell it above $100 million. Um, anything below that is going to be considered a failure to your investors. So you were getting rid of a ton of optionality in terms of selling your company for million bucks, five million bucks, 10, 10 million bucks, whatever, which is all life-changing amounts. And I, I always find that interesting because, you know, your life doesn't really change after $5 million. Like, and that's a lot of money, even $2 right. million or one minute or like 500,000. The only thing that really changes is your house gets a little bigger, your car gets a little faster, stuff that does not make you happy. Um, so that's why I always like to use the term like, you know, do you want to be king or do you want to, you know, be happy and, you know, financially secure? And there might be a path where you avoid venture capital by focusing on profitability and focusing on a sustainable business where cash flow is important, profitability is important, and it's not just growth at all costs. Um, and, you know, another thing about venture capital too is it's easy to get kind of like trapped in the cycle of how venture capital works. The first board meeting after you raise a Series A, guess what most investors talk about? It's how to raise the Series B. Right. Literally, you just got, you know, let's say 
eight, ten, twelve million dollars. Like you haven't even deployed like ninety nine percent of it, and then the first board meeting is, how are we going to get to the Series B? It's not. And again, I can't speak for every board meeting. I'm not in every one of them. Um, but from the ones I've been in, it's a talk of, you know, how do we get to the next group of investors? How do we convince the next group that, you know, they need to invest to fuel the company farther? And again, that's not always the case, but I think that's another thing with, um, you know, venture-backed companies is just this heavy reliance on capital um, to continue growing their business. And I think, you know, it's it's just not the the best route for a lot of entrepreneurs um and i think a lot of entrepreneurs are waking up to that where you know you don't have to be in silicon valley right you know we're me you're in you know what spain right now yep barcelona yeah i'm in the bay area um mostly because my wife's family is italian and she <laughs> has a big italian mob family out here so i i kind of <laughs> had to move out here but not for the tech scene um right. but my point is it's just you can build a company from anywhere. Like you said, you got started with your laptop, your own money, um, and you just got to work. And now you're running a company that I assume makes you happy that, you know, you have sometimes, very, yeah, I mean, every business <laughs> has problems. Um, you're adding value to your customers. It's sustainable. You don't answer to people telling you, Hey, you have to go up market, grow faster. Right. You need to focus on like enterprise accounts and stuff like that. And that may not be where, you know, your passion lies. Um, so yeah, long-winded answer to that question, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there's there's just smarter paths to take for entrepreneurs if you just understand statistically, you know, what are your chances of success? And then if you do go down the venture route, Definitely understand what you're signing up for. You're signing up to build a very big company and grow really fast. And, you know, that's going to, that's going to take a lot out of you physically, mentally, not saying that's a bad thing because a lot of my favorite companies are venture backed. Right. Um, but a lot of my favorite companies are bootstrap backed as well or not bootstrap backed, but yeah. You know, okay. uh, something a bit more personal that I want to ask you is um, for us running a business, it's like having a baby, right? I mean, I'm not a father, but I can imagine it's something similar. Um, when you saw business apps and Alcoin, did you ever get like the feeling of separation, like you were selling out or, or was it something that you just thought was natural and the right time to do it? Yeah, it's another good question. So I built both companies to sell. That was my goal. Mm. Um, business apps was incredibly profitable from pretty much the get-go um, ran the business with you know two million dollars in the bank um, all the way up into the acquisition um, which was actually purchased um, with a 1x multiple which is interesting you can sell the business with cash in it um, but you know when you sell a business you know it definitely like it, it's it's a part of you you know so when I sold business apps, I had ran that for eight years and, you know, it was some of, some of the best times in my life. I feel like I look back now and I'm like, that was such an amazing journey. And so when I sold business apps, um, you know, there was a period where I definitely like missed 
the company. I missed, you know, my team. We had, you know, a very, very um, fun culture. And so it, we were a family. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm out of the business and I'm like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> um, and that's just a, a natural part of the entrepreneurial journey. So I'm a big proponent of selling companies when you can. Um, and we can talk about, you know, when is the right time to sell a company. But as an entrepreneur, that's, you know, essentially the day that, you know, you were, you know, paid for the hard work and the value that you've added um, to the world. And at Business Apps, there's years where I never took a salary, uh, multiple years, um, you know, really put everything I had into that company um, with the goal of it being acquired and that being um, when I would have um, my financial outcome. Um, altcoin specifically was, you know, once you have a company acquired, you kind of are able to understand what buyers are looking for. And so even from like the first couple months of operating um, altcoin, my second company, we had already mapped out the strategic buyers that would probably be good fits for the company. Mm -hmm. um, so very early on. And we basically ran a process where we would update them as if they were investors because we felt that the best way to have the company acquired was to keep them involved, keep them updated. And that's what we did. And so, you know, it got to a point we built something of value that fit really well strategically into another company. And that's how the acquisition happened. So it was essentially um, like building a puzzle piece that fit perfectly into another company. And that was the whole thesis behind the company. Um, but yeah, man, like companies are your baby. Like they yeah. really are. But at the same time, you know, I did raise a hundred thousand for business apps. Yeah. So as CEO, I have a, you know, fiduciary duty to show return on that investment. So, you know, getting the company acquired was my goal from the start. And I feel fortunate I was able to, to do that because I also talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that, you know, you know, maybe raise a little bit of money, maybe raise a little bit too much money. And it just, the acquisition optionality is a little bit more limited than what I had um, because I had raised so little capital, but I still wanted to show return on these investors that believed in me when I was, you know, 21, um, took a shot on me. And that was another really rewarding part about selling business apps was I was able to, you know, return a substantial return to my investors. Right. Um, you briefly touched on it. But it, it seems like, especially with Alcoin, but but as, as well with business apps, you you built it with the intention of selling. So, what are some of the things that founders that also want to eventually sell their company should be thinking about from day one to make sure that that's a, the easiest process possible? Um, I, I'm asking because I started the company when I was 22, and I don't see it run, I don't see myself running it until I'm like 50. So. Um, yeah. What are some of the things that like I should be thinking about if I if I want to sell a company? I know it's different with SaaS and the service-based business, but what are some of the principles behind it? Yeah. I mean, the first thing would probably be to map out companies that you think would be good strategic partners. That's always the best place to start is, you know, really starting those um, conversations early because strategic partnerships can take a long time to it's just like dating where, you know, you really got to get to know team, company, how does this fit into the organization? And it's not going to happen overnight. So starting those conversations or at least getting that, getting your company on the radar is probably the first thing I would do. 
And then also understanding, you know, what people look for when they buy companies. So you have financial buyers that are going to be looking at profitability, um, mainly revenue. This is if you're selling to say private equity firm, um, they'll be looking at revenues typically above 10 million and above. I've seen a big flood of um, what I call like micro PE firms. That's what I see a lot in, in microquire, which looks at revenue lower than that. Um, but strategic buyers are the ones that are going to pay the highest multiple for your company. So starting those conversations early, um, being able to really document every part of your business is something I'd recommend. So, you know, whoever acquires your company can operate it without you in it. That's just a great way to be a CEO as well Is every part of the business, fire yourself from that right. part find someone smarter and just let them run with it. Um, but I'd say the main thing is just, you know, having conversations early with people that you think your company would fit in perfectly like a puzzle piece into this large organization. I love that. I, I think that's also going to make a great clip, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the second topic that I want to touch on, uh, and we've briefly touched about uh, off camera a few days before, ago, was about telling stories, like storytelling and how that can really change a business. So, so the first question that I want to ask you was, what makes a good story and how do you make it resonate with uh, potential, buy, like potential clients and the market? You gotta, you gotta have a, you gotta take a stance. You gotta have an opinion. You gotta pick an enemy. Um, an example at business apps was you know, we were a platform that helped small businesses, you know, get onto their customers' phones. So we developed mobile apps, progressive web apps for small businesses to connect with their customers where they were, and that's on your mobile phones. Um, but to develop a mobile app, it's like $50,000, it's six months of time. And then if you want to update it, it's like another 5K. And guess who can afford that? Right. Not small businesses. But big businesses can't. And so we developed, we worked on this narrative where, you know, we were helping small businesses essentially compete for their livelihood against mega brands. So these large corporations, these large chains that could afford this expensive technology, this expensive marketing um, tool for their customers. And we were helping small businesses offer that same sort of customer experience, but at a fraction of the cost. And so an example that we would use to really incorporate storytelling is, you know, what, where, what's your favorite coffee shop? Um, my favorite coffee shop is a very local one here in Barcelona. Nice. So do yeah. they have any sort of like mobile ordering, like you can order in advance or anything like that? They don't. They're very behind Starbucks. So there you go. Starbucks has right. a multi-million dollar app. And so... You know, we would reference that like, you know, we can allow you to deliver a customer experience just like Starbucks, but at a fraction of the cost. So you can compete against them. You can compete with the big guys. And so we basically had a small business versus big business narrative. And that can apply to any sort of company. Um, I think Salesforce did a really good job with that, where they branded an enemy with, you know, all software is installed on premise. And they were like, no, everything needs to be in the cloud. And people hated that at first. And, but over time, obviously that played out 
really well for them. I think another good example would be uh, Drift, where Drift is a company that does conversational marketing. And they said, you know what? People are sick of filling out these forms. They just want to talk to people right away. And they literally rebranded like a chat thing for sales teams. It's, right. it's brilliant marketing. But it was the story behind it, you know, telling people like, this is how buyers want to be treated today. They don't want to fill out a form and then be in a queue and then they get an email from someone to schedule me. They want to talk, you know, right then and there. Um, there's a number of different stories like that. But, you know, I think the core of a good story, you know, it, it starts with, you know, a problem and then, you know, it goes through a narrative of, you know, this is the common things that people try to do to solve that problem. And then they find a way to solve that problem that's 10 times better, easier, cheaper than what's currently available. And because they solved that problem with that solution, they were able to do all this really cool stuff. Um, you should look up the Pixar story motion. Um, that's a really good story framework. And then also just branding an enemy and having an opinion in your market, I think is um, an always a great place to start in terms of storytelling, but that's your brand. That's what people are going to, you know, feel and think and mm -hmm. really get behind um, beyond just your product. And that's why brand and storytelling um, today, I think is so important. So, so something that you do really, really well and um, that our, our company is based around is like the use of personal branding to share that story. Uh, like the figure of the CEO being more personable than the figure of the company and using that to, to market that as well. So um, what's your rationale? What's your strategy? Or, or why do you think it's important that uh, CEOs uh, invest in their personal brand and start creating content that shares that story, shares that message? I think the main thing is just, you know, the way buyers have kind of shifted where People want to buy from people that they know and they can relate to. And, you know, they can, they, they just know the person, like, you know, their personality, like, what do they stand for? Um, and that's a shift I think that's happened recently with, you know, platforms like LinkedIn, Twitter really becoming popular where you see CEOs like Aaron Levy from Box, um, you know, posting funny stuff all the time. But that, that also permeates into the culture of the company. Um, and it's important because when a CEO is visible to prospects with content, with their opinions, with advice or updates on the company, the prospects or the customers feel that it's a transparent and trustworthy company and that this is someone that they can essentially trust. And business is really like built on trust. Like you want to trust the people that you do business with. If you see a clip of a CEO doing something that maybe like the Uber CEO is probably a good example. That's not good personal branding. You want to work with people that are genuine, that are humble, that um, have a, a good head on their shoulders, that care about their team, that's knowledgeable um, and is willing to, you know, share, you know, their view, whether you agree with it or not um, with the world. Um, I can't say I have personal branding dialed down, um, but the CEOs I look up to, you know, the most are definitely ones that 
you know, they're putting it out there. They're, you know, whether you agree with them or not, um, they're sharing, you know, what they're working on, what's not working. Um, and, you know, I think that's what buyers really look towards to, to build that trust with companies that they're potentially looking to do business with. Andrew, I, I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining us. I, I want to get you out of here because um, I, I know you're busy. Um, but like I said, uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. It's always a pleasure to, to talk with you and we, we have to do part two because I have like 25 more questions to ask you that we didn't get to. If you got two more, I'll do it. No, I have like 25. But, um, but like I said, Andrew, I appreciate your time. And, and thank you so much. We're going to put the link to your LinkedIn, to your Twitter, to MicroAcquire uh, below. And like I said, a pleasure always. Sounds good. Well, hey, thanks for having me, Marty. I'm looking forward to, to round two. Absolutely, brother.